if you have your Bibles, I want you to turn with me to Exodus chapter 14. Today, I will be concluding a series that we've been going through as a church family uh, since the beginning of October called The Journey Home, Finding the Way Back to God. And, and this series was birthed out of a journey that the Lord took me on in my sabbatical this last summer of feeling kind of distant from God. And I, I know it doesn't matter what stage you are in your life. It doesn't matter how long you've been walking with the Lord uh, or not. If you've been at our church for 20 years or you've been at our church for two weeks, there are times and seasons in your life where you feel far from God, where you feel distance from God. And I found myself in a place doing more for the work of God and, and not uh, just missing a relationship with the Lord. It's not like I didn't have one, but I wanted that intimacy with God again. I wanted to be back in his presence again. And I found encouragement from the life of Moses, where, where Moses in the book of Exodus finds his way back to God. And in finding his way back to God, he finds his calling. He finds his purpose. He finds a position of leadership. God do, does so much in his life on this journey home. And so I pray today as we continue this series that God uh, captures your heart and God does something in your life. The title of my sermon today is Bury the Chariots. Bury the Chariots. Uh, I remember uh, doing something in middle school. Uh, I think this was popular in the early 90s, and it was doing a time capsule. Does anybody know what a time capsule is? All right, it's where you bury, put stuff into a box that, uh, that, uh, that you want to unearth later, and you bury it somewhere for it to be dug up in a later generation. Now, we did this, I think I was in sixth grade. Has anybody done a time capsule? Now, I've never heard back on the results if they ever dug it up. Uh, and I remember getting excited about a time capsule. And so me and my sister, we started burying time capsule all over the town that we grew up in. Uh, and as I was thinking about my message today and thinking about burying something, I realized this, that we bury things for three reasons. We bury things to uh, hide, we bury things to forget, or we bury things to say goodbye. Today, I want to talk about something that is buried, something that is buried, and it is burying the chariots. You're going to know what that means in just a minute. Follow with me in Exodus chapter 14, verse 21 through 31. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and all that night the Lord drove back the sea with the strongest east wind and turned it into dry land. The waters were divided, and the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground with a wall of water on their right and on their left. The Egyptians pursued them, and all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and horsemen followed them into the sea. During the last watch of the night, the Lord looked down from the pillar of fire and the cloud at the Egyptian army and threw it into confusion. He jammed the wheels of their chariots so that they had a difficulty driving. And the Egyptians said, let's get away from the Israelites. The Lord is fighting for them against Egypt. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea so that the waters may flow back over the Egyptians and their chariots and horsemen. Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and at daybreak, the sea went back to its place. 
The Egyptians were fleeing towards it, and the Lord swept them into the sea. The water flowed back and covered the chariots and the horsemen and the entire army of Pharaoh that had followed the Israelites into the sea. Not one of them survived. But the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground with a wall of water on their right and on their left. That day the Lord saved Israel from the hands of the Egyptians and Israel saw the Egyptians lying dead on the shore. And when the Israelites saw the mighty hand of the Lord displayed against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord and put their trust in him and their Moses servant. Now, I told you this last week. That the Exodus narrative is there in the Bible and it becomes the paradigm and the entire word of God for the deliverance and salvation of humanity. So the Exodus story isn't just a great story in the Bible that we like to think about and we like to read. I would argue that it is the foundational story that you need to understand in order to understand your relationship with Jesus. Why is that? Because in the New Testament, Jesus becomes the new Moses. Jesus leads us on a new Exodus. Jesus, what we talked about last week, is the dry ground that we walk through in the seas of chaos and the waters that is surrounding us in the world. Exodus is the foundational event for all of the Bible. It is important to understand. And not only that, this Red Sea crossing that I just read. Last week we talked about this, that, that this becomes the very first water baptism in all of Scripture. In fact, we get our ideas from water baptism from the Exodus. Think about it. That they walk through on dry ground. They are walk into the water and they walk out of the water. Their enemy is defeated and left behind and the chariots are buried. And last week I talked about the first step of baptism. The first step of walking through the waters is walking on dry ground. Ground. Now, water baptism is this. Water baptism is expression, confirmation, and initiation. Water baptism is doing something in the physical that is symbolic of a relationship with God in the spiritual. And it is foundational to our faith. It's why when we have a water baptism, we always say, if you've never been water baptized, we want you to join us and we want to see you baptized because it is an expression of what God has already done in your heart. It is symbolic of what God has done in your life. And through that baptism and through that relationship with Jesus, you get a new identity and a new calling and you have a new direction in your life. And so the first step I talked about last week was walk on dry ground. The second step today, I want to talk about burying the chariots. Bury the chariots. God's plan all along was to rescue Israel from slavery, but also to put an end to the power of Egypt in their life. You see, God led Israel to the edge of the Red Sea in what looked like a terrible military strategy because the Bible says that Israel was hemmed in by the desert. I mean, you don't go to the sea if you're going to go do battle. You, you, you don't block your way out. You find high ground or an escape route. But God led them to the edge of the sea and he enticed Egypt to follow. 
And so they came after them with all the power and might of the Egyptian army. The Pharaoh at the time was Ramsey II. He is known to be one of the best military leaders in ancient history. And the thing that you saw over and over in this passage is this idea of the chariots. They were followed by the chariots. You see, the chariots in Egypt is a symbolism of power. It's a symbolism of power. It is the one thing that created fear into the eyes of the Egyptians. Not just that Egypt came to follow, but they came to follow them with their chariots. And Israel didn't have chariots. Israel didn't have horses. And so the Egyptians came and they were completely incapacitated by God. Literally, if you were to read the Hebrew Bible, literally, it would be that the wheels fell off of the chariots. That God like threw them into confusion. He jammed up the wheels and he threw them into confusion. Never again would the chariots chase Israel. Never again would Egypt have a stronghold or power over Israel. Never again would they have to worry about the power of Egypt. You see, God didn't just save them from the bondage that locked them up. He actually destroyed them. What does this mean for our faith? The chariots represent the power of sin. It represents the power of sin. And when you walk with Jesus, you follow Jesus, you become a Christian, you live for Jesus, the power of sin in your life is broken. Now let me just say this, being a Christian is not about sin management. What do I mean by that? Sometimes we think that faith is about having morality. We think faith is about being a good person. And when we treat faith as morality, we do things in order to be good and we try to be good. But if you understand the Christian faith as morality and being good, you've missed the point of the gospel. You've missed the point of the, the entire scriptures if Christianity is about morality and being a good person. Christianity is about being changed and transformed in the core of who you are. And through that, you become the person that God wants you to be. You don't try to be a good person. You are good because God makes you good and he regenerates you. And so the Christian life is not about sin management. And when you come to know Jesus, just like each Israel crossed through the Red Sea, there is a shift in power in your life. You are no longer uh, dominated by the power of of sin, you have a new life. Sin does not control you anymore. There's a shift in allegiance of power. You see, bearing the chariots is putting to death the power of sin that it may have over your life. And when you cross over from dry ground, you go from death to life. And in your new life, your old life has been buried. Let me give you the New Testament a scripture for baptism in this burying of the old lives. This is how Paul puts it in Romans chapter six, verse four and seven. He says this, we were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. 
For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly also be united like him in a resurrection like his. For we know that our old self was crucified with him, so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin, because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. Let me say this, if you're taking notes, I want you to write this down. If you are a follower of Jesus, what has enslaved you in the past has no power over you today. There has been a shift and a change in something that controls you. Just like Israel was dominated and controlled by Egypt in the power of the chariots, they were freed from that. And God not only freed them from their slavery, he destroyed the very thing that enslaved them. And when you fast forward to what Jesus did on the cross, when he died for our sin, he didn't just die for our sin so we could be better people. He died for our sin to destroy what controlled us in the past. And as we follow Jesus, we are not controlled by sin any longer. We are controlled by what we call the Spirit. But this is what I want to talk about. Because some of you might be wondering, and why we get into the conversation about morality and sin management. Because some of you may ask, well, I'm a Christian. I accepted Jesus. I raised my hand. I asked him into my heart. So why do I still struggle with sin? If sin has no power, why do I still think about it? Why do I still fall into sin? Why do I still have addictions in my life? Why do I still rise up in anger in my life? If it's been put to death on the cross, why do I still have sin in my life? It's a great question, isn't it? Wouldn't it be great if the Exodus story ended here? Right, they crossed through the Red Sea, they got to the other side, Egypt was destroyed, and they lived happily ever after. Right, it'd be a fairy tale. But you know that the life of Christ is not a fairy tale. The, the, the scripture is not a fairy tale. In fact, they were freed from slavery, but they still had a journey and a battle that they had to face in the future. Their life wasn't over. The, the, there's a 40-year journey in the wilderness to the promised land. And there are times in this journey, multiple times, where Israel wants to actually go back to Egypt. They, they, they want to, and they say to Moses, it would be better for us to be in Egypt than to die in the desert. And what they're saying is better for us to be enslaved and have food in our bellies than be hungry and be dependent upon God. You see, it was easier for them to think about a life where their needs were taken care of than being dependent on God for the manna and quail that he would provide on a daily basis. They would rather be enslaved and secure than free and dependent upon God. I told you this last week, but I want to remind you that there is nothing in the Bible that promises when we come to know Jesus that we're going to have a life, a safe life. There, there is nothing that promises us an easy life when we come to know Jesus. That you're gonna have carefree life, a pain-free life on this earth. In fact, for many of the disciples who followed Jesus, life got harder before it got better. Life got more difficult before it got 
better. And what's difficult is we live in a Western culture that, that I think fundamentally believes this, that when life is easy, life is good. And when life is difficult, life is bad, right? The easy life is the good life. And the difficult life full of trials and challenges is the bad life. And so we want the good life. But that's not true, is it? Think about, think about your, your most memorable vacation. And when you think about your, your, and you have memories of the things that have happened in the past, you don't often remember the good things that happened. You, you think about the, the chaos that happened and how God worked through it. Let, let me give you an example. It was seven years ago next month that uh, Brianne and I uh, got asked to do a wedding in Central Oregon. And so it was in Eagle Crest and we took our whole family uh, and uh, it was over the holidays between Christmas and New Year. It was a young couple in our church and uh, we said yes, you know, they gave us a free room in Eagle Crest. It's going to be uh, this amazing little trip and we get to do a, a, a wedding uh, while we're there. And so uh, we, we were not even here at the church a year. It was two, oh, no, we were here a year. It was 2014 and we just bought a new car. New, new to us, all right? And new to us at the time was a car with 100,000 miles on it. Is anybody like that? All right. You get a car when someone else gets rid of it and it's dying on them. And so when I bought the car, the guy told me that it had a new transmission. And so I remember driving, you know, feeling safe and secure. I've got three kids at the time. And we're driving over Sandy Am Pass. Uh, and uh, my car starts acting up and we get into uh, Redmond there into Eagle Crest. And the next day, uh, I smell burnt oil. And so I take it to the Jiffy Lube and they change the transmission oil. Something's going on with my transmission oil. It should have been a warning to me not to drive anymore. But on the way back, we didn't drive while we were there. And the way back, we jump into the car. You know, we've got fresh oil. I just worry about this problem when we get back home. And so we're driving like up the mountain from east to west and we're, we go through Sisters and Powell Butte, and then we get uh, towards the top, and there's a snowstorm that's happening. I mean, it is whiteout conditions, and we're moving about 10 miles an hour, inching along, and my car smells awful. I mean, it smells so burnt that the transmission fluid is just burning up, and we know something is terribly wrong, and we're just inching along, and we pull into the snow park at the top of Sandy M Pass. How many of you guys know what I'm talking about? And we pull in there and our car is, it's just toast. We can't do anything. We can't move, can't go any further. We don't have any food. Uh, we've got three little kids in the car. We don't have any water. I mean, we just sit up there thinking, what do we do? And so uh, I, I, uh, we call it, we finally get a hold of, of somebody. We get reception and we call a tow truck. And while a tow truck's on the way, the state trooper comes and he helps us out and he, he says the same thing that I know that your car is done. The transmission is dead. And so the tow truck driver comes and, uh, and we're going to get a ride back to Ben. He's going to tow the truck to tow our car to Ben. Uh, but he only has room for four seats. And so I do what every good husband would do. I sent my wife and three kids with the tow truck driver while I stayed back with the state trooper. Uh, and, uh, and he gave them a ride to Ben and uh, the state trooper gave me a ride. Uh, and the cool part of the story is he found out I was a pastor and his pastor was a youth pastor in the same town that I was a youth pastor. And so during that time, he actually let me borrow his car. 
Now, we went back to Ben, we fixed our car, got a new transmission, didn't have to pay anything for it because for some reason it was under warranty. I didn't think about it. But, but my point is this. At the time, it was a terrible story. I mean, it was awful. My wife was not happy. <laughs> uh, things were not great. She was not happy she had to sit, sit by this stinky tow truck driver like for two hours in a snowstorm with our three little kids. But now, looking back, we see what God did. We see that it was, okay, what's, what's, my, what's my point? Is that the, 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 the good life is not the easy life. The good life is when you see God work through bad things that happen. So I want to get back to the question earlier. So why do we still struggle? Why do we still struggle? Because of this. That you can be saved but still have a slavery mindset. You can be saved by Christ, regenerated by him, but still have a mindset of an Israelite slave. You see, the Exodus, you can say this, that the Exodus was about getting Israel out of Egypt, but the 40 years in the wilderness was about getting Egypt out of Israel. Did you follow that? That that the Exodus was about freeing Israel physically from the bondage and slavery of the Egyptians, but the wilderness was about freeing them mentally from, uh, from the habits, patterns, and behaviors, the idolatry that the Egyptians had. See, once you are saved by Christ, you go through, uh, 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 the, the rest of your life is about sanctification. It's about becoming more like Jesus, growing to be like Christ. And a lot of it has to do with our mindset. You know, one thing we focus on in, 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 in our church and in churches and in, in the, uh, being a Christian is we always talk about the re, the, like the renewal of our heart. We make everything about our heart. Let me tell you theologically, uh, spiritually, what happens when you put your trust in Jesus. The Bible says that we are born again. It says that our heart is regenerated. Ezekiel puts it this way, that you get a new heart and you get a new spirit. I mean, it's, it, it, it's the biggest miracle that could ever happen. It's a bigger miracle than, than any kind of physical healing that happens is that God heals your heart. But he doesn't just repair your heart. The Bible puts it that you get a new heart. Like he completely changes it and transforms it. And so your life in Christ and sanctification is not about renewal of your heart. It's about the renewal of something else. It's about the renewal of your mind. Your heart is changed, but sometimes your mindset is still the life that you used to live. And it's hard to change your mindset. It's hard to be renewed in your mind. But the renewal of the mind is part of what sanctification is. Uh, Paul says this in Romans chapter 12. He says this. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Don't conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by what? Help me out. The renewing of your mind. The renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. You see, there is regeneration of your heart, and for the rest of your life, there is a renewal that happens 
of your mind. There is transformation that happens in your mind in the way you think. How many of you know this, that the battles that you face in life with sin and temptation in your life is often a battle in your mind? It is a battle in your mind. It's why Paul says that we need to renew our mind. I think one of the first steps to understanding this battle, when you, fate, when you are a follower of Jesus, but you face sin in your life and you're tempted and you fall into it, maybe addiction, a pattern, a behavior, and you fall into it, I think one of the first steps is to understand your identity. Too often, as a young Christian, I, I would often question my salvation when I went through periods of disobedience and rebellion. Now, you don't have to raise your hand, but have you ever questioned your relationship with God because of your behavior? It, 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 it's an uh, elementary way to think about our faith because the regeneration of our heart does not flip-flop based on our own morality. You know, you don't, you, you, once you've crossed over from death to life, you don't go back. And so the mindset, it's, it's changing your mindset and it's understanding your identity. I've been preaching the same message for the last nine years, almost nine years here at Red Hills Church. And I like to say it this way because I remember being a youth pastor and this just young man was giving an excuse for his bad behavior in his life. And he says, well, I'm just a sinner after all. And I kind of wanted to reach over the table and just kind of slap him in the face and say, you know, you're absolutely wrong. You, you aren't a sinner. If you're a Christian, you are not a sinner. Some of you think, oh, well, sometimes I make mistakes. You are, you are not a sinner. The Bible never calls the community of Christ sinners. What do they call them? Saints. When Paul writes the book of Ephesus to the saints in Ephesus, he doesn't say to the sinners. And the sinners in the Bible is a designation of people who have yet to experience the grace of God and the forgiveness of their past. And so when you cross over, you go from sinner to saint. That's important to understand. It's important to understand your identity. So you are no longer dominated by the behaviors of your past, but you are a saint who still happens to struggle with sin. But do you understand there's a difference? Your, your name and identity has been changed. And when Israel walked through the Red Sea, it did not mean that their struggles were over. Egypt was destroyed, but there was conflict to come. When you become a follower of Jesus, you are often still tempted by your past. And the fight doesn't end. The fight continues. And there is a battle that happens. First Timothy 6.12, Paul says to Timothy, fight the good fight of faith. He talks about the faith, just following Jesus, being a fight in and of itself. So I want to talk about it, and I want to conclude with this, is how do we fight the chariots? How do we fight the chariots? The power of sin that creeps up on us from our past. How do you fight the temptation that you face? How do you fight the behaviors and patterns that you're stuck in? How do you fight it? Here's my answer, we don't. We don't, God does. When I was a senior in high school, 
I remember being at a friend's house and you remember the days, I don't, I don't think this happens anymore, but like where a few friends would be hanging out at a house and all of a sudden there's like 20 teenagers. And uh, uh, you know, this is like the late 90s. And, and so I'm at my friend's house and there's like about 20, 25 uh, people show up and, uh, and, and my friend comes out of his house and he's got uh, two sets of boxing gloves. And we, uh, we started, like, people started boxing. And I remember this one kid, uh, his name was Eric. He was the biggest kid in our school, six foot seven. He was the center in the football team. He was the center on the basketball team. I mean, he was huge. And he wasn't overweight. He was just giant. He was massive. I mean, he was like Andre the Giant. And he puts on the gloves and he's just like, does anybody want to fight me? And everyone's like looking around and we're thinking, no. Everyone's like, no way, no way. And I think in my mind, here's my chance. <laughs> I'm thinking David and Goliath. I'm thinking Rocky versus the Russian. I'm like, this is my chance. I'm going to be the hero of my school. And I put the gloves on, right? And I'm about 165 pounds at the time. And he's about 325 pounds. And I think like, I'm going to take this guy. And so I put the gloves on. I go up and whoom, out of left field comes a right hook and he lays me flat on my back. It's the only time I've ever been knocked out of my life. It was the dumbest decision of my life. You don't fight sin with the way that you think you fight sin, not with the same power. In fact, what I want to argue is you don't fight at all. You don't put on the gloves. You don't fight back. You don't just try to push through. What do you do? I want to take you back to verse 14 and find three things that we do when we face sin in our life and the power of sin creeping up, uh, up on us. It's in verse 14. It's in verse 14, and it says this. Moses answered the people, do not be afraid. Stand firm, and you will see the deliverance the Lord will bring you today. The Egyptians you see today, will you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You only need to be still. I want to give you three things as we close today. The, the first thing is this. What do, what do we do when we're in a battle? What do we do when we're in a fight? What do we do when the chariots are still haunting our minds? The first thing is this, is stand firm. Don't run. Could you imagine, I mean, this is, this is, verse 14 is right before Israel crosses the Red Sea. And Moses tells them to stand firm. Just stay where you're at. Don't run. Because if you run, some of you are going to get killed. We're going to stick together as a community. Stand firm. Oftentimes when we're tempted, oftentimes when we're up against a fight, we run. Did you know? that Jesus himself experienced temptation? You, you know what the book of Hebrews says? It says that Jesus was tempted in the same way we are. In, in fact, Matthew chapter four details the story of the temptation of Jesus out in the wilderness where the devil comes and tempts Jesus. And, and it's important to understand what Jesus does. Jesus doesn't put on the boxing gloves to fight against Satan. What does he do? He quotes scripture. He quotes the truth of God. He stands firm 
on the word of God. Standing firm is putting your trust and belief in what the Bible and God has said. It's standing firm on God's word. So what do we do practically? If your struggle is with anger, find those verses in the Bible that talk about anger. If your struggle is with anxiety, find those passages that talk about worry. If your struggle is addiction, find those passages that talk about freedom. You stand firm on what God has already said. And you implement that in your life. The second thing to do is this, is to see God work. I like what Moses says. He says, see the Egyptians today, you're never gonna see them again. God wanted Israel to witness the destruction of the chariots. He wanted them to know that they were never coming after them again. Not now, not ever. God wants you to understand that you cannot be controlled in the past, by your past anymore. You've gone through the exodus. You've gone through a spiritual baptism. Your old life is dead. It's been crucified. It's gone. He wants you to see and witness the death of your old life. And the last one, I want to close with this. It's probably the most profound one, is to be still. It is to be still. He says, all you need to do is be still and let the Lord fight on your behalf. Let the Lord fight on your behalf. You see, there is power in resting and stillness in the Lord. We fight power of sin and things that are tempting us, not with frantic energy, but we fight it with resting and being still in the Lord. We fight it by resting and letting God do the things that only he can do. When we rest in his power, we allow him to do what he can do. We allow him to be God. When you try to fight it on your own, you try to become God in your life. But God is the one who's already defeated the enemy. God is the one who's already buried the chariot. And so if you're in a place in your life where you're struggling with your past, whether it's the pain of your past, whether it's a behavior of your past, whether it's an addiction of your past, we can listen to the words of Moses to the Israelites. Just be still and let the Lord fight for you. Rest in the power and knowing that God has already won and God will continue to win. In every circumstance, in every part, God is going to win. Jesus, when he died on the cross, he put to death all the sin of your past. It was nailed and dealt with 2,000 years ago. It has no power over you. It has no control over you. It's already been dealt with through the cross. I want you to bow your heads and close your eyes. Some of you this morning might be struggling with sin in your life, a pattern, a behavior, a lifestyle. And you need freedom, you want freedom. 
You want God to move in your life. I want to encourage you to be still in the presence of the Lord. I want you to know that just because you're struggling does not mean that you are not saved by God. Just because you're struggling does not mean that God loves you any less. In fact, Paul says, where sin abounds, grace abounds. It's like you can't outdo God. As the sin increases, grace increases. And we don't take advantage of it, but we rest in the fact that God has already taken care of it. That there is nothing that God can't forgive. There's nothing that God can't defeat because he already has. So I want to ask you as we close, and we're going to go into a song. If you're here today and you just say, you know what, I need God to work in my life, in a behavior, in a place, in areas of sin in my life. I just want you to put your palms up for a moment. Just as if you're receiving something for the Lord, I want to pray over you. Jesus, we thank you for your cross and resurrection. We thank you, God, that you died so that we don't have to. That you buried the chariots a long time ago and you buried the sin in our life. It has got no power. And Lord, I pray that those who are here today struggling with, with something from their past, God, that you would lead them to freedom. God, that you would lead us to a place of freedom, to a place of a renewal of our mind, a sanctification of our mind, God, in areas in our life. And Lord, I pray that we can live out of that fruitfulness of what you've done in our heart. Jesus, we praise you, we love you, and we honor you. And everyone said, amen.